0: Listener Production. This is Global Truths with Dr. Keith Suter. Join us each week as we break down one issue in global politics so that you can understand what's going on in the world right now and what's likely to happen in the future. Our host, Dr Keith Souter, is one of Australia's leading commentators on global affairs and geopolitics. My name is Sasha barber I'm a journalist. The UN University Institute for Environment and Human Security has come up with a new characterisation of future uncertainties, risk tipping points, or RTPs. The idea is that once we as a society reach these points, we're pretty much past the point of no return. And these RTPs are especially relevant to climate change. To explain them and what they mean, I'm joined now by Keith. Hi, Keith. Yes, good morning. Why have these risk tipping points been identified by the UN University Institute?
1: Because clearly the struggle to protect the environment is not going well. In a few days' time, we'll be having the opening of COP28. That's called the Conference of the Parties. And these are countries, pretty well everyone in the world, that 30-odd years ago or since joined up to the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change. It's called a framework because basically it's just a treaty saying we've got to do something about climate change. And then you have a series of protocols that hang off that major treaty. Mm. And there's also a mechanism for what is effectively now an annual review. And this year um, it's being held in the Middle East, ironically by a major oil producer. (laughs) (laughs) The bizarre. Anyway, that's what's happening. So that's COP. (laughs) 28 so the countries including Australia will come together to explain what they're doing to protect the environment particularly on the issue of climate change so that's the background to this mm. now Hugh Williams who works in the United Kingdom for um, a think tank called Sami S-A-M-I, he has popularized this UN report as you say it's dealing with the risk tipping points and so the risk tipping point is the moment at which a socio ecological system is no longer able to cope with the risks and there's then a a risk of catastrophic impact to these systems that Mm. starts to increase. So it's really taken the notion of the climate emergency, if you like, to a new level Mm. in focusing on these particular problems. What I found interesting in Hugh Williams's article is the way in which he's identified a number of these uh, particular problems, I might just run through some of the ones that he's got listed here. I've got to say, it's going to be a pretty depressing program. Yeah,
0: (laughs) I thought so. The
1: environment, you know, is just getting worse year by year. And every COP that takes place basically has an acknowledgement that things are not going as well as what was hoped 30 years ago. So what he's got here is this interconnected disaster risks So that's a report that came out just, well, in the last uh, few weeks. And it identifies six risk tipping points, five of which relate to climate change in some way. And so I'll just list the ones for us to keep an eye on. One is called accelerating extinctions. And Australia is, is, I think, the world leader here. Mm. The extinction of animals, et cetera, which we're wiping out at a phenomenal rate. We have a lot of unique flora and fauna in this country, and yet it's being jeopardised by this extinction that's getting underway. So the extinction is actually increasing at a faster rate. So that's one problem. The second one is groundwater depletion. So this is when the water table in a given what's called aquifer. So an aquifer is an underground lake. Mm -hmm. So we've got a huge... At one point, it was thought to be the world's largest, but I think we've now been overtaken by one in Latin America. But to the west of where we're seated, on the other side of the mountains, the Blue Mountains, or the Great Dividing Range, depending on where you are with this mountain range, there's a huge underground lake. So the early European explorers were intrigued by the flow of rivers inland. Mm -hmm. So if you're in the United Kingdom the River Thames flows out to the sea. If you're in the United States, rivers flow down to the Gulf of Mexico or the Atlantic or the Pacific, depending on where you are. And yet in Australia, a lot of our rivers actually flow inland. Mm. And the early European explorers, because they obviously didn't have planes to keep an eye on what was going on in the interland, when they set out on their expeditions, Ashley went out with rowing boats.
0: Yeah, right. (laughs) Because
1: they were expecting to encounter this huge lake in the middle of the country. Mm. Well, there is a huge lake, but it's underground.
0: Yeah, right. I didn't know that.
1: So if you look at the Diamantina River, for example, in Queensland, you'll see that it just flows Mm. on the western side of the Great Dividing Range and then just disappears into the ground. Mm. And then from time to time when you have a lot of heavy rain, the desert blooms. I've flown over Western Australia after one particularly wet year and it's amazing the diversity of colour. Mm. And then it all dies out and then it all sort of goes underground or whatever and then suddenly years later rain's come again, mm. and suddenly we have an onset of wildlife. I don't know where they were. They've been hiding in the sand. <laughs> and then suddenly all these fish appear yeah. in all these rivers that are appearing wow. in the wetlands. That's amazing. And somehow the birds on the coast get to see that the, the tides up, if you like, in central Australia. We think they can look at the reflections on the sky somehow mm. they know that there's going to be a lot of fish yes. in central australia so you suddenly see these huge migrations of birds flying into Central Australia to feed off all the fish that have suddenly appeared.
0: Amazing.
1: It is absolutely an amazing sight. The desert blooms. It's a great thing. If you ever get an opportunity to go out on an expedition, I thoroughly (laughs) recommend it. It's on my list. So that's your groundwater depletion. Yeah. And so what we're doing is that we're drilling all this groundwater, which bubbles usually quite naturally to the surface, we we'll use a windmill. Mm-hmm. So, if you know, you go around Australian farms, you'll see little windmills spinning around. That's pumping the water up to the surface. The problem is that we are doing too much pumping of groundwater. So there's a huge groundwater reserve in the United States, the Ogallala, which is the Texas panhandle, Oklahoma, and that is running dry. Mm. So America faces a major drought because they just... Are overusing their groundwater. So, the second thing which has been identified is the whole issue of groundwater depletion. The third one they identify are the mounting glaciers that are melting now. We have three poles on this earth North Pole and South Pole that we all know about. And then we have the Himalayas. Uh-huh. That is the earth's third pole. There you go. With all that ice and snow that's there. And then that melts every year. And then flows down mm. through the rivers into Bangladesh and elsewhere, and gives Bangladesh that incredibly rich soil, which is great for cultivation. The problem is it's vulnerable to flooding. That is the the mountain glaciers melting, and it's also worth bearing in mind by the way, that hydroelectric power that people talk so much about being fantastic, et cetera, that's under threat as well. Mm because we're running out of water flowing down through those rivers. So we will have a network of dams, but very little water water to keep them going. We see that already in the Western United States with the problem at Fort Meade. So we're actually beginning to run out of water coming in from the mountain ranges. So that's the third problem. The fourth one is unbearable heat. So being exposed to above 35 degrees centigrade for longer than six hours will result in even young, healthy people suffering extreme health consequences. Mm -hmm. Obviously, an older person will run into problems a lot earlier than those initial few hours. And, of course, this has implications right the way for us in Australia because we're going to become a much hotter society. It might, for example, affect tourism, that some tourists will say Australia is now too hot for us to risk a visit. Mm. And, of course, tourism is one of our major export industries. Mm -hmm but the word might go out that Australia is is, uh, risky to visit. The other problem will be people who work outside, for example, constructing buildings. Yeah. You know, there may be certain hours when they are banned from working in the sun. And so that's another problem, the whole issue of unbearable heat. And then they've also got here the question of the uninsurable future. Severe hazards will drive up the cost of insurance until it's no longer accessible or affordable. In other words, that what will happen is that people who uh, uh, want to live, say, in northern Queensland will find it impossible to get insurance. They'll still be allowed to live there. Mm. It's just they're going to be running the risk of being flooded and they won't be able to get insurance. They'll have to start from their own savings if they want to rebuild their house.
0: And we're already seeing that in areas like Lismore, Insurance companies will insure, but the premiums are so out of control that no one can afford them. So yeah. it's essentially uninsurable. Exactly, which yeah. is
1: what we're seeing here. Mm. So there's, there's some of the risks that they turn up. Another one that Hugh Williams has identified is the whole issue of space debris. Mm. We are running out of space in outer space. When you look at a, a diagram of all that's floating above our heads... It is quite amazing with all the little fragments, including even just little chips of paint. Yeah. You know, a fragment of paint, for example, hitting your satellite can wreck it Mm. because of the speeds at which they're travelling. He says that when there is a critical density of objects in orbit around the Earth such that one collision between two objects can set off a chain reaction, it will cause our orbit to become so dense with shrapnel that it becomes unusable. So that means that the use of your mobile phone through these satellites will just conk out. Mm. Trying to use MasterCard or whatever will just simply not work because you get one satellite hitting another, it shatters, becomes shrapnel, and then you get a chain reaction as that shrapnel then decides to hit other satellites. Yeah. So we bring down that entire orbital system that's around our heads. Very difficult to repair that. So these are some of the risks that are now being identified.
0: You're listening to Global Truths with Dr Keith Souter. Thanks for your company this week. As we discuss the tipping points we're heading towards in the fight against future uncertainties. Now, that was quite a list, Keith. I guess the next question then is, we've identified these risk tipping points. What's the theory of what happens You know, do we need to hit all of these for doomsday or is it one's (laughs) enough to kind of completely throw everything out? Well,
1: it may well be just one enough depends on the severity of it. Mm. You know, if you lose your groundwater, you'll be reliant obviously upon rain falling on you, but there'll be some areas if they don't get enough rain, they would certainly have problems. So what we will see will be the gradual areas of the world not being inhabitable because there's a shortage of, of rainwater or some other problem. And so we will gradually see the earth, which will contain 10 billion people, have areas in where people simply can't live. You know, when you listen to these doomsters talking about the environment, you get the impression that you'll wake up one morning and the whole thing will be over and done with. Yeah. Then that may be the case with artificial intelligence because robots think with the speed of light. (laughs) Um, But I think it'll be a gradual seizing up of the earth's natural systems. As you've said with Lismore, in northern New South Wales, you'll have some areas which are going to be very difficult in which to live. And so you'll have that occurring. You'll have other areas like North Queensland, Florida, which will also become very difficult in which to live. And so bit by bit, the net will close in on us. Mm. Armageddon, when it occurs, unless it's a nuclear war or an AI takeover of humankind, (laughs) um, I think it's going to just gradually creep up at us Mm. and get worse and worse. Sometimes called the boiling frog syndrome. Yes. You know, the idea that if you throw a frog into boiling water, it jumps out. But if you put the frog into nice warm water, it gets so used to it that it doesn't notice you're increasing the temperature of the water until it's too late for the frog to jump out.
0: Mm. It's interesting because I think that's part of the problem in trying to get a solution or more action on climate change is because without one event, without one thing that happens and everyone goes, oh, it's real. Like, (laughs) it's this gradual, Mm. slow process. So people, particularly people who make money from certain industries (laughs) and profit off it and, you know, politicians who want to win the vote of their electorate who don't believe in climate change potentially – they go, oh, well, we'll push it off. It's it's a future problem. How damaging is that?
1: Well, I think it obviously is damaging and it's leading because I do support there's a problem of, of climate change. Mm. Uh, my organisation, the Club of Rome, has been saying that in one form or another since 1972. Mm-hmm. We've got the runs on the board in terms of warnings. If we had acted quicker to save the environment, then we would now be in a better position. But at the moment, I, I agree a lot with what someone like Greta Thunberg would say, that we're just losing the race to save the earth.
0: There are also a list of solutions, as it were, in this analysis. Give us some hope, please. <laughs> well,
1: it's interesting because Hugh Thomas, in in going through the, the document, actually talks about this being aspirational and trying to be optimistic rather than coming up with specific plans. The four options that we've got, really, in terms of, well, climate change or anything else, is one is to avoid the problem in the first place Mm. which we've now left it too late to try to avoid it we might be able to avoid some of the really really bad consequences but certainly the problem is here now a second one is to delay the onset of the problem that would have been excellent if we had taken the club of rome's advice back in 1972. a third one is that we simply adapt to it and this is where a lot of the attention is now being given You know, I come across experts on uh, geoengineering or whatever who talk about the need to build seawalls. And so when you're building your seawall, like the Netherlands, great example, much of the Netherlands is actually below sea level, but you feel quite safe being there. And the Netherlands is actually one of the world's major food exporters Mm. uh, because of their intensive cropping system. But a lot of that is actually technically below sea level, but they've got a great system, what are called dikes, these big dams that are built along the coast they do occasionally get flooding disasters but generally speaking the dutch have shown the world how you can reclaim land because the land that's under the water when you reclaim it is actually very good for cultivation Mm -hmm. so you reclaim the land you have a good dike system and that enables your society to flourish and the netherlands is doing extremely well of course at one point it was actually the global superpower When you think about it, Tasmania was claimed by Tasman from the Netherlands. So the Netherlands have been very successful in coping with sea level. Now, whether they're going to be able to cope with all the other threats that I've identified, you know, if the satellite system goes down, they're as vulnerable as the rest of us. But that's the third option to adapt. And the fourth one is to transform. In other words, you just simply say, look, we've just got to start afresh and begin anew. My, a great example from this area is Jakarta, the capital city of Indonesia, which started by the Dutch, and it began when the Dutch were colonising that area. It began its modern life as a city with a series of canals, etc. But over the centuries, Jakarta has become overcrowded, the canals have fallen into disuse, and the city is now sinking because the groundwater has been taken from underneath Jakarta, and so the ground itself starts to fall down Mm. into the soil, Mm. um, which means, therefore, that the surrounding sea can get in. Right. And so the Indonesian government have made the decision to simply shift the national capital. So they're going on to another island, (laughs) and they're busy building an alternative capital city. Wow. I'm not sure what they're intending to do with Jakarta,
0: Maybe it'll be the next city of Atlantis. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
1: so that should transform. So they're your four options, but they don't actually provide detailed advice and they would all require major upheavals. Mm. The report suggests that we need to have a new way of looking at the world. One is to see yourself as being a good ancestor. Mm. We live in a society at the moment where we look out for number one. Do unto others before they get a chance to do it unto you. Yeah. The meek might inherit the earth, but they won't get the mineral rights. Mm-hmm. Now, what they're saying is no, you've got to think of yourself as a good ancestor, and you've got many descendants who will come along after you. Mm. Therefore, you've got to be a good ancestor. Second mm. one is you've got to be one with nature. We started off that way. And of course, Indigenous peoples see themselves as being part of nature. But then, as the technological revolution got underway, we tended to live separately from nature and to dominate nature with dams and and bridges and whatever. So this report says, well, we've got to go back to that early thinking. Indigenous people had the right answer. Another one is to create a world without waste. There are some interesting things going on now. I've just been intrigued by a new telephone company that has been created that produces its telephones from recycled material, Mm. and you can repair them yourself. Remember the the great failure with mobile phones. Mm -hmm. It's that you can't repair them.
0: It breaks and you throw it out and get another one.
1: Exactly. Yeah. And you get some people who want to buy a new iPhone every year.
0: Yeah, every time a new one comes out. Yeah. It's consumerism.
1: Exactly. (laughs) Yeah. So you've got to get away from that mindset. Bad news for Apple, Mm. but that will be one way of saving the world. Cultivate a global neighbourhood. In other words, to see yourself working with other countries. Yeah. Hard to imagine that when we're spent so much time discussing Ukraine and Gaza, know, et cetera. I
0: know.
1: And finally, design an economy of well being. Mm. In other words, instead of focusing just on growth, you've actually got to say, well, what's best for the well being of citizens? So that gives you a new target towards which to aim. So in other words, you start to re examine your national statistics. Because if you look at the United States, the economy is booming, but you've got huge numbers of people who are living below the poverty line. Mm-hmm. So you've got to rejig your own thinking and say the primary purpose of the economy is to look at people's well-being, not to end up at the top of the economic growth Mm. scorecard.
0: Well, you were right. It wasn't the most uplifting of uh, (laughs) podcast episodes today, Dr. Suda, but, you know, this work is so important and I think it's important for all of us to sit and consider all the things you've just said there of ways that we can be better and hopefully have a better future. Thank you. Global Truths is presented by Dr. Keith Suter and me, Sasha Barbara Gatt. Audio production by Niall Fernandez. Theme and original music by Matt Nicolich.